At the risk of alienating the purists among you still further, I've made the decision to skip book five in my audio. Risky, I say, because these chapters feature one of our main characters, Claude Frollo. But I did so for two reasons. First, to the extent that it might advance the plot in any important way, I can and will summarize it very briefly. And second, I found it boring. Feel free, of course, to read it yourself. But if you trust my instincts about what constitutes a Hugo-esque digression, then just trust me and follow along on my path. In Book 5, Chapter 1, Claude Frollo is visited by two men, the king's physician, Jacques Quatier, and a stranger, introduced to Claude Frollo as Father Tourangeau. Tourangeau has come to ask for medical advice, and Claude Frollo responds by pointing to a sign on his wall that reads, Medicine is the daughter of dreams. Claude Frollo says he believes neither in medicine nor astrology. He believes only in God and in alchemy. Tourangeau listens to him talk about his studies with interest inviting him to come the next day to the Palace of Tournelle and ask for the abbot of Saint-Martin de Tours. Claude Frollo then realizes, in amazement, that this stranger is in fact the King of France. In Chapter 2, Claude Frollo expands on his declaration, pointing first to the book laid out on his table and then to the Cathedral of Notre-Dame. The one will kill the other. This thought, Hugo tells us, had two phases. First, it was the terror of a priest who sees, quote, the future intellect undermining faith, opinion superseding belief, the world shaking off the yoke of Rome, unquote. And second, the lament of the artist and scholar that printing would destroy architecture as the great book of humanity. Perhaps this summary will motivate you to read these chapters on your own, or perhaps it will suffice. In any case, I'm now going to move on to Book 6. Notre-Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo Book 6, Chapter 1 An Impartial Glance at the Ancient Magistracy A very lucky fellow, in the year of grace 1482, was that noble gentleman Robert Destutville, knight Lord of Ben, Baron of Ivry, and Saint-André in La Marche, Counselor and Chamberlain to the King, and Keeper of the Provosty of Paris. It was some seventeen years since he received from the King, November 7, 1465, the year of the Comet, the handsome appointment of Provost of Paris, which was regarded rather as a dignity than an office. Okay, bear with me. Latin. Dignitas, says Joannes Lamnius, quae cum non exigua potestate politiam concernente, atque prerogativis multis et juribus conjuncta est. Eh, it's not bad. It was an extraordinary thing in 1482 for a gentleman to hold a commission from the king, and a gentleman, too, whose appointment dated back to the time of the marriage of Louis XI's natural daughter to the bastard of Bourbon. On the same day that Robert de Stutville succeeded Jacques de Villiers as provost of Paris, 
Master Jean Dauvé took the place of Master Elie de Tourette as first president of the Court of Parliament. Jean Juvenel des Arsins supplanted Pierre de Morvier in the office of Lord Chancellor of France. Regnault de Dormont deprived Pierre Puy of his place as referendary in ordinary to the king's household. Now, through how many hands had the presidency, chancellorship, and referendaryship not passed since Robert de Stutville was made provost of Paris? The office was granted into his keeping, said the letter's patent, and certainly he kept it well. He clung to it. He identified himself with it. He made himself so much a part of it that he escaped that passion for change which possessed Louis XI, the suspicious, stingy, industrious king, who insisted on keeping up the elasticity of his power by constant removals and appointments. Nay, more. The worthy knight had obtained the reversion of his office for his son, and for the last two years the name of the noble Jacques de Stutville, Esquire, had figured beside his own at the head of the ordinary of the Provosty of Paris. Assuredly, a rare and signal mark of favor. True, Robert de Stutville was a good soldier. He had loyally raised his standard against the League of the Public Wheel, and had offered the queen a very marvelous stag made of sweetmeats on the day she entered Paris. Besides, he had a good friend in Master Tristan Lermite, provost of the marshals of the king's household. Master Robert, therefore, led a very smooth and pleasant life. In the first place, he had a capital salary, to which were attached and hung, like so many additional bunches of grapes to his vine, the revenues of the civil and criminal registries of the provostship, besides the civil and criminal revenues of the inferior courts of the Châtelet, not to mention some slight toll on the Pont de Mont and the Pont de Corbeil, the tax on all the onions, leeks, and garlic brought into Paris, and the tax on wood meters and salt measures. Add to this the pleasure of displaying his fine suit of armor within the city limits, and showing off among the party-colored red and tan robes of the sheriffs and district police, which you may still admire carved upon his tomb at the Abbey of Valmont in Normandy, as you may also see his embossed morion at Montlhéry. And then, was it nothing to have supreme power over the twelve sergeants, the porter and warder of the Châtelet, the two auditors of the Châtelet, Auditores Castelletti, the sixteen commissaries of the sixteen quarters of the city, the jailer of the Châtelet, the four and fiefed sergeants, the hundred and twenty mounted police, the hundred and twenty vergers, the captain of the watch, his underwatch, counterwatch, and rear watch. Was it nothing to administer high and low justice, to exercise the right to turn, hang, and draw, to say nothing of the minor jurisdiction, in the first instance, in prima instantia, as the charters say, of that v-county of Paris so gloriously provided with seven noble bailiwicks. Can anything be imagined more agreeable than to give judgments and degrees, as Master Robert de Stutville did daily at the Grand Châtelet, under the broad flat arches of Philip Augustus? 
and to return, as he was wont to do every evening, to that charming house in the Rue Galilée, within the precincts of the royal palace, which he held in right of his wife, Madame Ambroise de Loray, there to rest from the labor of sending some poor devil to pass his night in, quote, that little lodge in the Rue de l'Escorcherie, wherein the provosts and sheriffs of Paris were used to make their prison, the same measuring eleven feet in length, seven feet and four inches in width, and eleven feet in height, unquote. And not only had Master Robert de Studeville his private court as provost and viscount of Paris, but he also had his share both active and passive in the king's own high justice. There was no head of any note but had passed through his hands before falling into those of the executioner. It was he who went to the Bastille Saint-Antoine in search of Monsieur de Namur to take him to the markets and he who conducted Monsieur de Saint-Paul to the Greve. The latter gentleman, sulking and fretting, to the great delight of the provost, who had no love for the constable. Here, certainly, was more than enough to make life happy and illustrious, and to justify in the future a memorable page in the interesting history of the provost of Paris, wherein we learn that Oudard de Villeneuve had a house in the Rue des Boucheries, that Guillaume de Angest bought big and little Savoy, that Guillaume Tiboust gave the nuns of Saint-Geneviève his houses in the Rue Clopin, that Hugues Aubriot lived at Hotel de Porc-Epic, and other domestic facts. And yet, with all these motives for taking life patiently and pleasantly, Master Robert de Studeville waked on the morning of January 7, 1482, in a very sulky and disagreeable mood. Whence came this ill humor? He could not have told you himself. Was it because the sky was overcast? Because the buckle of his old Montlhéry belt was fastened amiss, and girt his provostship's goodly portliness into military a fashion? Because he had seen a band of ragamuffins march through the street below his window, mocking him as they passed in double file, wearing doublets without shirts, crownless hats, and wallet and flask at their side? Was it a vague presentiment of the three hundred and seventy pounds, sixteen pence, and eight farthings, which the future king, Charles the Eighth was to cut off from the revenues of the provosty? The reader can take his choice. As for us, we incline to the belief that he was out of temper, simply because— he was out of temper. Besides, it was the day after a holiday, a stupid day for everybody, and especially for the magistrate, whose duty it was to sweep away all the dirt, actual and metaphorical, caused by a popular holiday in Paris. And then he was to hold court at the Grand Chatelet. Now, we have noticed that judges usually so arrange matters that the day upon which they hold court is also the day on which they are out of temper, in order that they may always have someone upon whom to vent their rage, in the name of the king, law, and justice. However, the court had opened without him. His deputies, in the civil, criminal, and private courts, were doing his work for him, as was the custom 
and ever since eight o'clock in the morning, some scores of citizens, men and women, crowded and crammed into a dark corner of the lower courtroom of the Chatelet, between a stout oaken railing and the wall, had blissfully looked on at the varied and attractive spectacle of the administration of civil and criminal law by Master Florian Barbdian, auditor of the Chatelet, and provost's deputy, whose sentences were delivered pell-mell and somewhat at random. The hall was small and low, with a vaulted roof. A table, branded with fleur-de-lis, stood at the back of it, with a large carved oaken armchair, which belonged to the provost and was empty, and a stool on the left for the auditor, Master Florian. Below sat the clerk, scribbling. Opposite him were the people, and before the door and table were a number of the provost's officers, in frocks of purple camlet, with white crosses. Two officers from the Commonalty Hall, arrayed in party-colored red and blue kersey jackets, stood sentry before a half-open door behind the table. A single arched window, deep-set in the thick wall, cast a ray of pale January sunshine upon two grotesque figures— the comical stone demon carved as a tailpiece to the keystone of the vaulted roof, and the judge seated at the end of the hall upon the fleur-de-lis. Now, picture to yourself at the provost's table, between two bundles of papers, leaning on his elbows, his feet on the train of his plain brown cloth gown, his face framed in its white lamb's wool wig, of which his eyebrows seemed to be a fragment, red-faced, stern, winking and blinking, majestically bearing the burden of his fat cheeks, which met under his chin, Master Florian Barbdien, auditor of the Chatelet. Now, the auditor was deaf, a slight defect for an auditor. Master Florian gave judgment, nevertheless, without appeal, and very properly, too. It is certainly quite enough if a judge look as if he were listening, and the venerable auditor fulfilled this condition, the only one requisite to the due administration of justice, all the better for the fact that his attention was not to be distracted by any noise. Moreover, he had a merciless comptroller of his sayings and doings among the audience, in the person of our friend Jean Frollo du Moulin, the little student of the previous day, that pedestrian who was sure to be found anywhere in Paris except in front of his professor's desk. "'Stay,' he whispered to his comrade, Robin Pouspin, who was chuckling beside him while he commented on the scenes unrolled before them. "'There's Jeanneton de Buisson, the pretty daughter of that loafer from the new market. Upon my soul, he has condemned her, the old wretch. Then his eyes can't be any better than his ears.' Fifteen pence and four Paris farthings for wearing two strings of beads. That's rather dear. Lex Duri Carminis. Who's that fellow? Robin Chief de Ville, hauberk maker, for having been passed and received as a master of the said trade? It's his entrance fee. Hello, two gentlemen among these varlets, Aigle de Soin, Utin de Mailly, two esquires, Corpus Christi. Aha, they've been playing at dice. When shall I see our rector here? A hundred Paris pounds fine to the king. 
Barb Dien hits hard, like a deaf man as he is. I wish I may be my brother the archdeacon, if this prevent me from gambling. Gambling by day, gambling by night, living a gambler, dying a gambler, and gambling away my soul when my last rag's gone. Holy Virgin, what a lot of girls. One after the other, my lambs. Amboise Lécuyère, Isabeau La Peinette, Bérard Giranon. I know them all by heaven. Fine em, fine em. That'll teach you to wear gilt belts. Ten Paris pence coquettes. Oh, what an old dog of a judge. Deaf and imbecile. Oh, Florian, you blockhead. Oh, Barbdien, you booby. See him sit at table. He gobbles the suitor. He gobbles the suit. He minces, he munches, he stuffs himself, he fills himself full. Fines, estrays, taxes, expenses, legal costs, wages, damages, torture, prison and jail and stocks are Christmas cakes and St. John's March pain to him. Just look at him, the pig. Now, then, good. Still another amorous dame. Thibaud la Thibaud, and no one else for leaving the Rue Glatigny. Who is that fellow? Giffroy Mabonne, bowman of the guard. He swore by the holy name, did he? A fine, Thibaud. A fine, Giffroy. Fine em both. Deaf old fool. He must have mixed the two charges up. Ten to one, he'll find the woman for swearing, and the bowman for making love. Attention, Robin Pouspin. Whom are they bringing in now? What a lot of sergeants! By Jupiter! All the hounds in the pack are here. This must be the best head of game they've got. A wild boar. It is one, Robin. It is indeed. And a fine one, too. By Hercules! It's our yesterday's prince, our lord of misrule, our bell-ringer, our one-eyed hump-backed pet, our wry face. It's Quasimodo. It was no less a personage, indeed. It was Quasimodo, bound, corded, tied, garroted, and well-guarded. The squad of men who had him in charge were assisted by the captain of the watch in person, wearing the arms of France embroidered on his breast, and the city arms on his back. There was nothing, however, about Quasimodo, except his deformity, which could justify this display of halberds and arquebuses. He was somber, silent, and quiet. His solitary eye merely cast an occasional crafty, angry glance at the bonds which held him. He gazed around him with the same expression, but so dull and sleepy was it that the women only pointed him out to each other to mock at him. But Master Florian, the auditor, was attentively turning over the brief containing the charge against Quasimodo, which the clerk had just handed him, and having examined the papers, seemed to be meditating for a moment. Thanks to this precaution, which he was always careful to take just before proceeding to an examination, he knew in advance the name, condition, and crimes of the prisoner, had his answer ready for the replies which he expected, and succeeded in extricating himself from all the intricacies of the examination without making his deafness too apparent. The brief, therefore, was to him like the blind man's dog. 
If he chanced to betray his infirmity by an occasional incoherent remark or an unintelligible question, it passed with some for profundity, and with others for imbecility. In either case, the honor of the magistracy was unimpeached, for it is much better that a judge should be considered stupid or profound than deaf. He accordingly took great pains to hide his deafness from all, and usually succeeded so well that he had actually come to deceive himself, a thing, moreover, which is easier than you would think. All hunchbacks carry their heads high. All stammerers are fond of speechifying. All deaf people speak in low tones. As for him, at most he thought himself a little hard of hearing. This was the sole concession which he was willing to make to the public opinion upon this point, in his moments of perfect frankness and self-examination. Having therefore thoroughly considered Quasimodo's case, he threw back his head and half-closed his eyes, in order to look more majestic and impartial, so that for the time being he was both deaf and blind, a twofold condition without which there can be no perfect judge. In this magisterial attitude, he began his cross-examination. Your name. Now, here was a case which had not been provided for by the law, that of one deaf man questioning another. Quasimodo, quite unconscious of the question, continued to gaze fixedly at the judge and made no answer. The judge, deaf and wholly unaware of the prisoner's deafness, supposed that he had answered, as all prisoners were wont to do, and went on with his mechanical and stupid assurance. Good. Your age? Quasimodo made no answer. The judge was satisfied and continued. Now, your business. Still the same silence. The audience began to whisper and look at each other. That will do, resumed the imperturbable auditor, when he supposed that the prisoner had ended his third answer. You are accused before us, primo, of making a nocturnal disturbance, segundo, of an indecent assault upon the person of a light woman, in preudicium meretricis, which translates literally as in prejudice of prostitutes, tertio, of rebellion and disloyalty towards the archers of the guard of our lord the king. What have you to say for yourself on all these points? Clerks, have you written down all that the prisoner has said thus far? At this unfortunate question, a shout of laughter burst from both clerk and audience, so violent, so hearty, so contagious, so universal, that even the two deaf men could not fail to notice it. Quasimodo turned away, shrugging his hump in disdain, while Master Florian, equally surprised, and supposing the laughter of the spectators to be provoked by some irreverent reply from the prisoner, made apparent to him by that shrug, addressed him most indignantly. "'Such an answer as that, you rascal, deserves a halter. Do you know to whom you speak?' This sally was scarcely adapted to silence the outburst of merriment." It seemed to all so absurd and ridiculous that the contagious laughter spread to the very sergeants from the commonalty hall, the kind of men-at-arms whose stupidity is their uniform. Quasimodo alone preserved his gravity, 
for the very good reason that he understood nothing of what was going on around him. The judge, more and more indignant, felt obliged to proceed in the same strain, hoping in this way to strike the prisoner with a terror which would react upon the audience and restore them to a due sense of respect for him. So then, perverse and thievish knave, you venture to insult the auditor of the Chatelet, the chief magistrate of the police courts of Paris, appointed to inquire into all crimes, offenses, and misdemeanors, to control all trades and prevent monopoly, to keep the pavements in repair, to put down hucksters of poultry, fowl, and wild game, to superintend the measuring of logs and firewood, to cleanse the city of mud and the air of contagious diseases, in a word, to watch continually over the public welfare, without wages or hope of salary. Do you know that my name is Florian Barbdien, and that I am the Lord Provost's own deputy, and moreover, commissary, comptroller, and examiner with equal power in provosty, bailiwick, court of registration, and presidial court? There is no reason why a deaf man talking to a deaf man should ever cease. Heaven knows when Master Florian, thus launched on the full flood of his own eloquence, would have paused, if the low door at the back of the room had not suddenly opened and admitted the provost himself. At his entrance Master Florian did not stop short, but turning half round on his heel, and abruptly addressing to the provost the harangue with which but a moment before he was overwhelming Quasimodo, he said, "'My lord,' I demand such sentence as it may please you to inflict upon the prisoner here present, for his grave and heinous contempt of court. And he sat down again, quite out of breath, wiping away the big beads of moisture which ran down his face like tears, wetting the papers spread out before him. Master Robert de Stutville frowned, and commanded Quasimodo's attention by a sign so imperious and significant that even the deaf man understood something of his meaning. The provost addressed him severely. "'What brings you here, scoundrel?' The poor wretch, supposing that the provost asked his name, broke his wonted silence, and answered in a hoarse and guttural voice, "'Quasimodo.' The answer had so little to do with the question that an irresistible laugh again ran around the room and Master Robert cried out, red with rage, "'Would you mock me, too, you errant knave?' "'Bell-ringer of Notre-Dame,' replied Quasimodo, fancying himself called upon to explain to the judge who he was. "'Bell-ringer, indeed,' responded the provost, who, as we have already said, had waked in an ill enough humor that morning not to require any fanning of the flames of his fury by such strange answers. "'Bell-ringer, I'll have a peal of switches rung upon your back through all the streets of Paris. Do you hear me, rascal?' "'If you want to know my age,' said Quasimodo, "'I believe I shall be twenty on St. Martin's Day.' This was too much. The provost could bear it no longer." Oh, you defy the provost's office, do you, wretch? Vergers, take this scamp to the pillory in the greve. Beat him well, and then turn him for an hour. He shall pay me for this, odd zooks. 
and I order this sentence to be proclaimed by the aid of four sworn trumpeters throughout the seven Castellanis of the V County of Paris. The clerk at once wrote down the sentence. A wise sentence, by God, exclaimed the little student, Jean Frollo du Moulin, from his corner. The provost turned and again fixed his flashing eyes upon Quasimodo. I believe the scamp said, by God. Clerk, add a fine of twelve Paris pence for swearing, and let half of it go to the church of St. Eustache. I am particularly fond of St. Eustache. In a few moments the sentence was drawn up. It was simple and brief in tenor. The common law of the provosty and the vicounty of Paris had not yet been elaborated by the president, Thibault Bayet, and by Roger Barmou, the king's advocate. It was not then obscured by that mass of quirks and quibbles which these two lawyers introduced at the beginning of the sixteenth century. Everything about it was clear, expeditious, and explicit. It went straight to the mark, and at the end of every path, unconcealed by brambles or briars, the wheel, the gallows, or the pillory were plainly to be seen from the very outset. At least you knew what was coming. The clerk handed the sentence to the provost, who affixed his seal to it, and left the room to continue his round of the courts, in a state of mind which must have added largely that day to the population of the jails of Paris. Jean Frollo and Robin Pouspin laughed in their sleeves. Quasimodo looked on with indifference and surprise. But the clerk, just as Master Florian Barbdien was reading the sentence in his turn before signing it, felt a twinge of pity for the poor devil of a prisoner, and in the hope of gaining some diminution of his punishment, leaned as close as he could to the auditor's ear, and said, pointing to Quasimodo, that fellow is deaf. He hoped that their common infirmity might rouse Master Florian's interest in the prisoner's favor. But, in the first place, we have already observed that Master Florian did not care to have his deafness noticed. In the second place, he was so hard of hearing that he caught not one word of what the clerk said to him. And yet, he wanted to have it appear that he heard, and therefore answered. Oh ho, that's a different matter. I did not know that. Give him another hour in the pillory in that case. And he signed the sentence with this modification. Well done, said Robin Pouspin, who bore Quasimodo a grudge. That will teach him to maltreat folks. Chapter 2 The Rat Hole With the reader's permission, we will return to the greve which we left yesterday with Gringoire to follow Esmeralda. It is ten o'clock in the morning. Everything smacks of the day after a holiday. The pavement is covered with fragments, ribbons, scraps, feathers from the plumes, drops of wax from the torches, crumbs from the public feast. A number of citizens are lounging here and there, occasionally stirring the dying embers of the bonfire with their feet, going into ecstasies over the pillar-house, as they recall the fine hangings of the previous day, and staring at the nails which held them, the last remnant of their pleasure. The vendors of cider and beer roll their barrels through the various groups. A few busy passers come and go. 
the shopkeepers chat and gossip with one another at the door of their shops. The festival, the ambassadors, Copenol, the lord of misrule, are on every tongue, each vying with the other in the severity of his criticisms and the loudness of his laughter. And yet four mounted police, who have just stationed themselves at the four corners of the pillory, have already collected about them a goodly portion of the populace scattered about the square, and willing to stand stupidly still for any length of time, in the hope of witnessing some petty punishment. If now the reader, having looked upon this lively and noisy scene, enacting in every part of the square, will turn his gaze towards that ancient, half-Gothic, half-Roman structure, known as Tour Roland, which forms the western angle of the quay, he may perceive at the corner of its façade a large public breviary, richly illuminated, protected from the rain by a small penthouse, and from thieves by a grating, which, however, allows the passer-by to turn over its leaves. Beside this breviary is a narrow arched window, guarded by two iron bars placed crosswise, and looking out upon the square, the only opening through which a little air and light reach a tiny cell without a door, built on the ground floor, in the thickness of the wall of the old house, and filled with a peace made more profound, a silence made more melancholy, by the fact that a public square, the noisiest and most thickly peopled place in all Paris, swarms and shrieks just outside. This cell has been celebrated throughout Paris for almost three centuries, since Madame Roland, of the Tour Roland, being in mourning for her father, who died while on a crusade, had it hewed out of the wall of her own house and shut herself up in it forever, keeping no part of her palace but this one lodging, the door of which was walled up and the window open, in winter as in summer, giving all the rest of her property to God and the poor. The desolate dame did indeed await death for twenty years within this premature tomb, praying night and day for her father's soul, sleeping upon a bed of ashes, without even a stone for pillow, clad in black sackcloth, and living on such portions of bread and water as the pity of the passers-by placed on her window-sill, thus accepting charity after having bestowed it. At her death, as she was about to pass to another tomb, she bequeathed this one in perpetuity to all afflicted women, mothers, widows, or daughters, who had great need to pray for others or themselves, and who wished to bury themselves alive in token of their great grief or great penitence. The poor of her time paid her the best of funeral rites in their tears and blessings, but to their great regret the pious dame could not be canonized a saint for lack of patronage. Those of them who were inclined to be impious hoped that the matter might be more readily arranged in paradise than at Rome, and quite simply prayed to God instead of to the Pope for the deceased. Most of them were satisfied with holding her memory sacred and making relics of her rags. The city, for its part, founded for the lady's sake a public breviary which was fastened to the wall near the window of the cell, so that those who passed might occasionally stop, if only to pray, so that the prayer might lead them to think of alms, 
and that the poor recluses, the heirs of Madame Roland's cell, might not die of hunger and neglect. Nor was this sort of tomb a great rarity in the cities of the Middle Ages. There might frequently be found, in the most crowded street, in the most motley and clamorous marketplace, in the very midst of the confusion, under the horse's feet, under the cartwheels, as it were, a cellar, a well, a walled and grated cell, within which some human being prayed night and day, voluntarily vowed to everlasting lamentation, to some extraordinary expiation. And all the reflections which would be roused today by so singular a sight, that horrid cell, a sort of connecting link between the house and the tomb, the cemetery and the city, that living creature cut off from human companionship and thenceforth reckoned with the dead, that lamp consuming its last drop of oil in darkness, that remnant of life flickering in a grave, that breath, that voice, that perpetual prayer in a coffin of stone, that face forever turned towards the other world, that eye already illumined by another sun, that ear glued to the wall of the tomb, that soul imprisoned in that body, that body imprisoned in that dungeon, and beneath that double casing of flesh and stone the murmur of that suffering soul. Nothing of all this was noted by the crowd. The unreasoning and far from subtle piety of that day could not conceive of so many sides to an act of religion. It viewed the thing as a whole, and honored, venerated, sanctified the sacrifice if need be, but did not analyze the suffering, and pitied it but slightly. It occasionally bestowed some pittance on the wretched penitent, looked through the hole to see if he were still alive, knew not his name, hardly knew how many years it was since he began to die, and to the stranger who asked about the living skeleton rotting in that cellar, the neighbor simply answered, That is the recluse. People saw things in this way, then, without metaphysics, without exaggeration, without magnifying glass, with the naked eye. The microscope had not yet been invented, either for material or for spiritual things. Besides, although people marveled so little at them, instances of this kind of claustration in the heart of a town were really very frequent, as we just now observed. Paris contained a goodly number of these cells for praying to God and doing penance. They were almost all occupied. It is true that the clergy did not care to leave them empty, as that would imply lukewarmness among the faithful and they therefore put lepers into them when they had no penitence. Besides the cell in the Greve, there was one at Montfaucon, one at the charnel house of the Cemetery of the Innocents, another, I've forgotten just where, at Clichon House, I believe. Others again in many other places, traces of which may yet be found in popular tradition for lack of monuments. The university also had cells of its own, on saint Genevieve's mount, a kind of medieval Job, for thirty years, sang the seven penitential psalms upon a dunghill, at the bottom of a cistern, beginning again whenever he reached the end, chanting louder by night, 
mania voce per umbras. And even now, the antiquary fancies that he hears his voice when he enters the street known as Rue Puy qui talking well. But to keep to the cell of the Tour Roland, we should mention that it had never wanted for recluses. Since Madame Roland's death, it had seldom been vacant for more than a year. Many women had gone thither to weep until death for parents, lovers, or sins. Parisian malice, which interferes with everything, even those things which concern it least, asserted that very few widows had ever been seen within its walls. As was the fashion of that period, a Latin inscription on the wall informed the learned passers-by of the pious purpose of this cell. The custom was retained until the middle of the 16th century of explaining the purpose of a building by a brief device inscribed above the door. Thus we still read in France, over the gate of the prison belonging to the manor of the Lord of Tourville, Sileto et Spera. In Ireland, under the escutcheon over the great door of the Fortescue Castle, Forte Scutum Salus Ducum. And in England, over the main entrance to the hospitable manor of Earl Cowper, Tum Est. In those days, every edifice embodied a thought. As there was no door to the walled cell in the Tour Roland, someone had carved in Roman capitals over the window these two words. Tu ora, you pray. Hence the people, whose mind never grasps such nice distinctions, and who are quite ready to translate Ludovico Magno into the Port Saint-Denis, gave this dark, damp, gloomy cavern the name of Truora, or the Rat Hole, an explanation possibly less sublime, but certainly more picturesque than the other. <laughs>